So we have this experience of the, this monastery, a um, group of people living in a monastery. And then uh, people coming on Saturday night. Suddenly the group is rather larger, whole assembly of people. And then other times there's less people, and then when the dana comes, uh, people come, and there's a lot of people come to bring dana. Suddenly so you've got a large group, and then it goes down again. And then spending quite a bit of time on one's own. And then the, then the times when we're doing the chores and living in silence, so you're kind of sort of with a group, but only very minimally. You've only got one channel. It's the visual channel open, as it were. And you're kind of moving around each other and doing things to get sort of together and sort of separately. And then the, this occasion, the Dhamma talk, when there's says one person talking and 30 people listening. And he's kind of, uh, just to kind of contemplate some of the impressions that arise around these different experiences of, of singularity and plurality, of belonging, of not belonging being new, of being, you know, a kind of passive listener, or being the person who's doing the talking, and all, all the things that can arise around that. Mm. Now we can we can kind of uh, not look at the experience at all and just think, well, you know, basically I'm here to do my practice. Not really into groups anyway. But this uh, um, you know, this is not a very 
a very sensitive statement because I think there's certainly part of our minds that uh, is very much uh, who we seem to be individually and that's connected to a whole group of things to our parents, to uh, people we've lived with, to friends, to people we had difficulties with to role models, to the Buddha, to so and so, so and so, so and so we're part of a psychological group sometimes that we feel shut out by that group we feel we're not we're not worthy of you know we feel estranged from the Buddha or we feel hostile to our mother or we feel let down by our friends and other times we can feel very much included in it so we have the kind of personal group network within our whole psychology that we, we sometimes we like and sometimes we reject it we have there's a whole kind of uh, operation happening there and similarly with the external group we can find occasions when we think I don't fit I don't belong, I don't fit and uh, even I don't care so what Um, but then actually the empathy is still there we still notice, it's not like you go out and stand up amongst the cars and say I don't fit (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a car you know I don't belong to this group of cars. It just doesn't 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 mean anything. You can feel you belong or don't belong to a group of humans. That's a meaningful statement. So when you say you don't belong, it's because you recognise that something is belonging there and feeling funny about it, feeling odd about it, feeling awkward, nervous about it. Feeling rejected by it, and at that when it feel when we feel like that, then we think, well, well, I'm the only Spanish person here. I'm the only one out, or I'm the oldest person here. I'm the other one out. I'm the youngest person here. I'm the odd one out. I'm only a layman. I'm the odd one out. I just got here. I'm the odd one out. I'm the one who was. I can't meditate. I'm the odd one out. <laughs> You know, we're all the odd ones out, you know, depending on where and then what it feels like. Everybody else is in the flow, except for me. Well, I don't care. So what? Well, I sort my, you know, do my own practice and so what? Kind of thing. This is a kind of way of covering up the feeling of feeling odd and left out. It's a sort of compensation mechanism. And then maybe there are times when we feel we're just all part of the flow, and maybe we can't like that. Here we are, the Sangha, da, 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 very nice, you know. We feel like that, belonging to it all. And certainly, um, the kind of <coughs> more wholesome, uplifting aspect is to feel connected. This is where you get the sense of uh, of um, faith. It's a kind of free flowing experience when you do feel connected. So, uh, when when it's like that, then one feels some sense of inspiration. With with that particular experience, so. And the important thing is to be able to to 
find a place where you, you're connected, you know, for that particular uplifted energy. So, you know, if you're, the, the whole idea of uh, this Sangha life is one of participation. Everybody participates in some way. You feel your participation is, is valid and worthwhile. You can make something out of it. You, know, you, can, you can make that an aspect of your practice. You're feeling you're offering from that position. Because the experience of participation is very much one of giving oneself. An experience of non-participation is either feeling you haven't got anything to give, nobody's interested in what you've got anyway, um, that kind of experience. So then it feels quite negative. And then if you look at it in terms of, uh, of um, one's own practice, where you think finding a way one can participate uh, with a feeling of fullness to it, if you're cooking, then to really make you know make that something that you can develop and cultivate as a not particularly in terms of uh, you know great meals, but in terms of fe- feeling uh, how to do it well, how to do it thoroughly, how to do it mindfully, how to how to learn to operate with the other people in the kitchen and so on. Um, you know, with all the varying indeterminate factors of how much food there is, who's coming, who you're working with, and so on. You know, how to kind of work around that. Um, this is skillful cultivation. And feeling that, uh, you know, whatever you bring up at the end of, by 10.30 will be really gratefully received. No, I've never known anybody turn their nose up and walk away from a meal here. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a kind of captive clientele. And actually, that's that's it's that's quite gear, that's quite easy because generally, in like retreats, the cooks are always a popular teacher falls out of favour after a few days. <laughs> <laughs> cooks are always get the presence at the end of the, the thanks. <laughs> so you're on a winner, really. And for the, the people who are practicing the silence and we're just meditating together, then it gets a more, maybe a little more refined, you know, like, say, just really putting effort into, meet, you know, we don't meet that often. Well, I meet a couple of times a day. But then, you know, making it something that you really see, well, this is something we're going to do, let's see if we can do it well, you know, get there on time, you know, be part of it. Learning the chanting, developing the chanting, not as something that's so specifically great in its own right, any more than cooking a meal. You don't have to be particularly brilliant at it, or with fantastic new chants, but just to really kind of put one's heart and and interest into that, giving to it. So this is something we can all do, and the idea of having these uh, the morning and evening chanting is to give us an opportunity to have a a participation experience which isn't dependent upon age or seniority or wisdom or you know anything like just everybody does it together and uh, and then what we're doing really is collecting 
around the aspiration for uh, enlightenment, for truth, for our own well-being, put it in very mundane terms, um, our own honesty, our own well-being, our own uh, freedom or release from suffering. That, you know, and basically the system of of behavior of of uh, uh, mod- moderating and disciplining one's behavior, the sila, and then control uh, uh, working with one's mind, samadhi, and then panya, the results, the, the learn insight, and how one um, can can uh, develop that, cultivate it, share it, share one's truth, either verbally or just by one's presence. So this can be a very beautiful experience for people who are peaceful or calm or warm, friendly, easy to live with, uh, skillful, you know, aware of what's going on. You know, so it can be a very lovely experience, even if one isn't really saying very much. And, and that is, uh, there's a beauty in that, what the Sangha is supposed to be about in that, in that level. And it provides a field for other people to come and graze in something where it feels good. There's a, there's a mood, there's an atmosphere, there's an ease to it. And there's a, you know, it's available. as a tangible heart experience. And this is very important because it's on that level of chitta, of sensitivity, of that kind of heart experience that, that you begin to get, to awaken that. Because this is the, the, the primary um, area for investigation, um, investigation of the jitta, of the of the the heart, of um, what makes us tick, if you like, of where our moods arise from, where our beliefs are held, where our fears are held, where our joys are, where our love and uh, aversion are stored. This is the this is the heart of the matter. So to be able to connect to that is is a very important thing, and the whole sense of participation both um, gives one uh, an experience that is essentially empathetic. You flow with it. You don't necessarily understand it or think it's a great idea, but you give to it and you flow with it. So you get that particular experience. And then because then a certain party was activated, that which can participate and flow, the sensitivity, then what, what comes up into full consciousness is, say, the qualities of that when it's cramped, when it's contracted, when it's nervous, when it's withdrawn. So you're much more in touch with what really has to be dealt with than just through operating in terms of the thoughts going through the brain which are really just the servants of the urges and drives and um, boundaries of the jitta. The brain serves it, comes up with the thoughts from that particular. So the terms of uh, sankharas or mental formations, so the jitta is the kind of basic emotive motivator. It's the thing that sends out the the, the the suffusions, joyful or negative, uh, worried or expansive, frightened or loving, whatever, and then the 
the, the mano or the measuring mind weaves those into patterns of ideas and thoughts. So the sankharas are both the kind of emotive push and also the, the molding those into thought patterns and notions and ideas. And this is what the sankara is, this twofold nature. It's both um, emotive and it's also conceptual. And it operates through the citta and the, the heart, if you like, and the brain, like that. But uh, in terms of, of real, really uh, coming to terms <clears throat> with it, then the process, if you like, is, 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 is exactly the same in reverse. You start with ideas, if you like, like you maybe, or you've got a basic, of a basic inclination, something you, you, know, you get feeling, I don't feel right, this doesn't feel good, I'm not happy, something's going to feel out of sorts. What's going on? So you get this is a kind of chitta experience of dissociation or confusion or depression or loss or, or just must be something better than this. Then you get an idea, you know, Buddhism, monastery, meditation, dip, 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 get the idea. And then you, then the, that particular note, you get some teachings which are expressed in terms of ideas and concepts and you try to translate those into heartfelt experiences. And so these two of the brain, if you like, and the heart have to come together in that. This is participation. And uh, it's, it's that cultivation itself is very precious and very beautiful. Because uh, however well it's going or not going, at least one is connecting. And it can be very the case where humans spend lifetimes actually with their brains barely recognizing what's really happening in their hearts or recognizing, half recognizing and then whoops, look somewhere else. So you get a kind of festering basement of the heart, <laughs> you know, sealed off with occasional kind of ghosts looming out of it at odd moments. And then this, this dialogue starts to take place and you've got to sometimes dig it into the basement with all, with all the um, some rather shadowy things are occurring and bring them to light in order to get some sense of synthesis. Um, so when we consider um, you know, the practice, then I'm, I'm presenting a kind of integration, if you like, model, just for your consideration. Isn't that the way the teaching works, bringing these two together? If you just think the ideas, it doesn't go very far. If you just plunge straight into the, the heart, it's kind of interesting in there, but often, you know, it gets, you need a direction of some kind, you need some sort of nudges or guidelines. We're going to put the two together. And this is very much the model, in essence, of what Vitaka Vichara are about uh, and the process. Vitaka is that you get a particular message in your brain like, point your attention there. A very, very simple message, very, very short, you know, like the breath, one breath, uh, in-breath, out-breath, you know, just that much. And so that you that points your attention and you pick up. What does it feel like? You know, the two together. 
what does it feel like? This is vichara. Yeah? So this is your, your basic model of meditation is these two agents. So the brain, if you like, and the heart are continually knitting together around a meditation theme, such as body, such as a feeling, such as um, your breath. Hmm? And when it does so, when this occurs, and you get this quality of pity or a sense of enjoyment and then a sense of ease and the two come together. There's a feeling of integration which is easy and you get this sense of, of harmony or one-pointedness or collectedness, which is samadhi. And if we look at this on the external level, then you can say similarly, um, Sangha life or life, it, it, Sangha life certainly is about that. You know, one has to learn Things like, you know, how to wear the robes and what the rules are and all these things can seem a bit uh, dry at times or sometimes even a bit pointless. And, uh, but then if you get into it, then you start like anything else, like riding a bike or learning to swim or playing the piano. You've got to do the hard, boring bits first of all, the exercise. When you get into it, then you get the flow experience. Um, Ideally, anyway, <laughs> you get the flow experience, and this flow experience is like what the samadhi is—a kind of flow experience. It's flow experiences are just a particular. I think it's a word that's used nowadays to express the kind of uh, optimum exp- experience that people get when they're in, a, you know, optimum performance of some kind. You know, like musicians or athletes, you get somewhere. It's just it's just happening, and you're there with it, and it's, it's, it feels beautiful. And so um, meditation is like that on one level, and certainly Sangha life can be like that on one level. There's moments when it's like that, or times when it's like that. But of course, in order to be like that, you've got to, you know, it's, it, you, you, it's not quite like playing an instrument, um, piano or something like that, because... Certainly in Sangha life you do have things like how to look after your arms, bowl and that on the other, which are fairly stable. A lot of Sangha life is about being with a group of other people. So this is like being with a piano that changes into a saxophone. (laughs) (laughs) And just you're starting to learn that, it it becomes a drum. Oh, so it's like a continual woo. So it really is a master craft, um, and uh, very few people actually uh, could could really feel that they're, they're that accomplished at it. I would imagine uh, certainly to be accomplished at it, one would have to a great degree of mastery. And primarily, what the ma- uh, the beauty of it is that it does urge a kind of mastery, primarily of one's self. This is where you 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 deal with people. Or you try to understand and relate to people and situations by understanding and relating to your responses to them and situations. So we look very often at sound conventions themselves. You can think, I don't know if I really believe in all this stuff that I'm sort of expressing my adoration of every day and night. 
That's all being, you know, what's this about? Do I really believe in the Lord, the Blessed One? I am the Buddha's servant, am I? (laughs) These kinds of uh, experiences. I don't know about that. Um, So, but then, you know, one can basically, you you begin to recognize, well, maybe this is like an aspiration, uh, more like, like a poem or a song. The one sings, you don't take it literally true any more than when you sit in the bath and sing on my old man's a dustman. It has to be actually true before you can sing it. It's just the feeling of expressing sort of some sort of sense of, of um, you know, joy and, and willingness. <laughs> and then it was something we're doing together. So, you know, we could sit and sing my old man's a dustman together and probably quite enjoy it. And, you know, so <laughs> this is great. Uh, and none of us would take it as true or a belief. But then when we sort of chant homage to the Blessed One, then we think, oh, I don't know if I really agree with this. <laughs> but of course, the the. Uh, so one can feel that you need to really look at what what is this thing supposed to be about, you know, and then as a certainly as a chitta experience, as an experience of participation and sensitizing, and aspiration, and these kinds of metaphors and visions and all that. Well, okay, we can work in it on that level. And then it can start to flow, and then with a lot of the details of sangha life. You know, and there are sort of different, different monitors, different styles. They will we do it this way here. And you know, you think, well, do you have to? But it's all right to do it this way. It's all right to meet at seven thirty in the evening. It's all right to, you know, eat out of our arms bowls, or you don't have. It's not absolutely compulsory, but it's all right. So you think, well, just for the sake of a participation, we'll do that. Um, because there's no, no particular reason why not. Or if there is, you begin to kind of contemplate why. You know, what's, what's happening with these things? What's happening with this? Um, and what's the experience like of you know, what could happen to us in, in life here? So in terms of the, um, you know, you, you, you get a view. I don't, see, I don't really think that chanting Paritas is really doing anybody any good at all. Silly. Waste of time. Okay, so that's, that's, an, that's an idea in the mind. It's a, it's a brain thing. It's, it's just a stepping back and... And, and describing in some kind of terms of a pattern, relating it to some sense of function or purpose or something of that nature. And then experience is very much one of, of, a, of one feels kind of closed off from that. We feel perhaps self-conscious about it. We feel um, negative experience. And then maybe we start judging other people like, well, this person's silly because they do it like that, or this kind of thing. 
and then we start to judge the situation as one where, you know, where that little incident, that particular event, becomes the whole focus of the whole day or the whole week, you know, where that's the thing that sticks in your mind. And you think it's the thing, but really, if you look at it more closely, it's really, why is that thing there in your mind? Why does it keep coming back to you? Because of the, you have a view about it. Why do you have a view about it? What is it related to? And often it, it very much is associated with a sense of stepping out of a participation experience and, and looking at it from uh, kind of a brain brain way of looking at it. Last time I was in, in America, I uh, stayed at a place and uh, the person who I was staying with was quite hospitable, you know, quite a lot of faith in the Sangha and, you know, really a lot of interest in the Dhamma. Very nice, you know. And uh, towards the end of my stay, she, we had a talk. She, I, was, I was on retreat, so we didn't really talk much at all. You know, I just saw her very briefly, occasionally now and then. And she'd often put food in the bowl. And I thought, well, it'd be nice just that before I leave to have a talk. You know, just have tea together. You know, because i nice to express my gratitude of being here. So we sat down and we started talking. And she got into, why do monks have to wear skirts? <laughs> so then this conversation <laughs> stuck on this point for about three quarters of an hour. Actually, it wasn't a conversation. It was a monologue punctuated by well, first of all me trying to explain eventually me just grunting <laughs> and she was saying I don't possibly see why you can't wear trousers like, like baggy pants like the Mahayana monks do because he said you can't there's no way at all that the Dharma is going to spread in America unless monks wear pants <laughs> so that was her take on it so we spent maybe 45 minutes batting this one around. I was thinking, but, I mean, where's, you know, monks, pants, America? I just wanted to sit and be with this person and say how nice it was staying here. <laughs> I don't really care about monks and pants in America and the spreading of the Dharma. I just want to have a moment of saying, this is a really nice place, how are you doing? Da, 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 da. You know, just as some sense of sharing. And then you look at all these, the, the topic of the conversation was something that was actually <clears throat> abstract. Because if I'd have said I agreed or disagreed, it doesn't really make any difference to what monks are going to do in America, is it? I mean, if I've had the power to make it that way. <laughs> and I was just noticing how, you know, when you get, when you get very preoccupied with these abstract ideas and judgments, which sound like they're going to do a lot, how are we going to change the world, but actually take us out of experiencing and empathizing and relating in the present moment. You get stuck on a convention, get stuck on, a, on an appearance. Even when you're saying, I don't say, well, we should do these, all, these, all these conventions and forms, because Buddhism isn't really about conventions and forms, it's about transcendence. So I really have a problem with these conventions and forms. So we end up talking about conventions and forms. Well, it, you know, if, if it's not about conventions and forms, why are they a problem for you? 
it's, you know, it's because the, even when if one says it's not a problem, it's still you make, one makes it a problem by, by seeing it as being that. It's only really one when has actually contacted a convention and form, held it, worked with it, understood what it's doing to you, resolved whatever, you know, fascinations or aversions one has with it, that the form then disappears, it becomes transparent. I never think about monks spreading Dhamma in America or wearing pants. I don't, you know, <laughs> they said, let's wear pants, fine. <laughs> I never even think about wearing robes, actually. It doesn't, doesn't occur to me. So the thing has become transparent. So the what one can see is how when some when you get stuck on something, then it acquires this solidity that seems to be inherent in the thing, but is really dependent upon one's own mood, emotion, feeling, reaction to that thing. And what we can do, rather than try to change the world, or the past, we can actually work on our reactions and moods. Now this is um, definitely uh, an area to consider because, of course, the problem with this all this participation um, theory is that uh, it's often the case that people participate in things that are downright hideous. So, when a group becomes a mob, yeah, we're all participating in (laughs) ripping somebody apart, in uh, (laughs) beating somebody up, in, you know, yeah, there's a great flow going, Um, you know, bullfights, badger hunting, uh, yeah, great group energy. Or you get kind of, or, or in, in religious circles, you get kind of fanatical um, group hypnosis. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, sure, yeah, you've got to be wary of, you've got to be aware of participation, and and it's not just a kind of, you know, free giving oneself to any old set of conventions and systems, but one has to operate both with the heart, recognize that, and see. You know what what particular heart qualities it brings up, and then also with the brain, discerning the patterns. And the brain is the pattern maker, so the brain can can the heart actually just experiences the sense of empathy and sharing and connectedness, and the brain determines the patterns that come out of that. Mm-hmm. Brain sets the boundaries, says okay, this is a, this is a I've witnessed, you know, I've looked through this, this is, this is safe, you can be alright, you're alright to really just go into that. Or I've re- looked at this and this is not safe, you know, there's uh, violence happening here, there's hurting people happening here, um, there's lying happening here, there's stealing happening here, this is not safe, don't participate in this. Hmm? Or there's heedlessness. This kind of a, a direct intention to not witness, to 
to to not be quiet, to not go, to not introspect at all. Be careful. This is all just about belief in outward form. So yeah, so they both have their parts to play. Um, but in this, uh, uh, the basis of sangha is essentially is one that that means that one does. Um, su- survey the arena and very close eye on the level of, of morality, um, the sila, and also on the sense of uh, um, you know, other kind of power plays and things like that that may happen in groups. You're being put down, you're being kind of uh, scapegoated, and all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. This is certainly something to keep you know, speaking up about and reviewing. So we have our fortnightly meetings to do this kind of thing. So if one does that, feels free to do that, then you're also free to get a sense of your uh, letting go into it and participation in it. So this is also accounts for the lay people coming here. Sangha is not a closed shop. Um, when you uh, convention of it but then the the essence of it the assembly is something that's kind of fluid and amorphous it's it's as open as your ability to participate and commit yourself to it within this level of the five precepts the eight precepts and so on Now, when one begins to bring this kind of uh, understanding into into meditation, then it, it, it's of some significance. So, the idea of you know working within a group, working with a situation, begins to give you models of, and examples of how to work what would seem to be in uh, in oneself. First of all, we can start to contemplate how the you know, the sense of when the sense of self arises, dependent upon a, a group, a, other people. So when we feel uh, trusted, uh, welcomed, and so on, that's it. so. I myself feel that you get a kind of sense of being a, a, a welcome object in other people's mind. That's your that's yourself is a pe- pleasant experience. Then you get this pleasant feeling, and then a sense of a positive agent. So. The me feels enthusiastic, interested. The mind, which is the feeling and the perception, is benevolent. And the self is something that's uh, welcomed. So you get this me, mind, self thing. It's like that. Then you feel rejected. And you get an unpleasant perception. And the, end of the I am, the end of it, feels either negative, depressed, or vengeful. You know, rejected. So then you get then it's the agent of negative karma. This is just the process of associative karma. Now when you take that into the the sphere of meditation, so there you are with your, you know, we we try to bring the practice to bear upon the body. Now if your body impression is painful, or unsatisfactory, energy is low, if you're sick, hurt, 
then that sense of being a body, the self at that moment is your body. That's your that's your object experience. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's unpleasant. Then you get then the, what you have are unpleasant feelings and perceptions, and then what you seem to be as a as an agent is someone who's kind of can't do it or afflicted. You get a kind of negative feeling out of it. Similarly, when you're working on the mind, you you recognize you know your mind is not behaving. And you identify with that, yourself is your mind. So your mind seems to be depressed, restless, not concentrated. You get unpleasant feelings and perceptions, you start to feel, I can't do this, I can't make it, waste the time, like that. Now when the practice is going well, then we focus on on the body and there is a sense of uh, connectedness to that and it feels... You feel uh, you're getting a, a sort of a well-adjusted body image, and you get a pleasant perception, feeling, and you feel positive. So this is how you know when you get, cultivate samadhi, it tends towards that particular experience, and you get a flow experience. Now the 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 the, the rub of it, of course, is how we work with the difficult ones, both in terms of uh, of um, you know, uh, the difficult self, whether it occurs in terms of a group, in terms of a psychological group, like, you know, how do I fit in with Ajahn Man and Ajahn Chah and the Buddha, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Or when, or the sense, of, you know, or when the, how you fit in with those things, or how you fit in with the, the mental states and the body experiences that are happening. And the meditation's going, if you like. And when it's not going, when, when it's a negative experience. This is where the, the basic agent, or the me, if you like, is, is mindfulness. The actual active force is, the, is mindfulness. Now, it's, it's only uh, when we have the good experience of self that we're able to fully practice. When there's a, there's a positive experience of self, then there's bound to be a positive activity coming out of that. When there's a negative experience of self, there can be a negative activity coming out of it. And it's... Um, so this is something to bear in mind because uh, the whole teaching on not-self tends to make you for, uh, not realize or recognize that in order to, to really understand not-self, you have to get yourself together. <laughs> yeah. And this is... Um, so if you, if, you ju- if you work from the brain in Buddhism, you tend to start off with a natā, and what you get is uh, a non-participation experience with your body and mind. You get to, because it's not self, so it's out there somewhere. And this actually can fit in with all kinds of afflicted psychology about not wanting to be here. 
not wanting to be alive, not wanting to feel things, not wanting to have to deal with things. And so uh, certainly one of the one of the instinct, one of the kind of urges to meditate that people experience is just a basic thing of don't want to experience things, dissociation. So when you that gets hold of a doctrine like anatta, then you really get go to town on on uh, dissociation. And you can even find uh, systems of meditation start to play into that. So, like the first when I was first practicing meditation, um, I didn't want to be there. Um, interestingly enough, I was in a situation where dawn practice was on one's own. There was no group meetings at all. We just practiced on our own, so that kind of heightened it. Um, the sense of non-participation. And the system I was using, one where you kept noting everything in these impersonal terms. So the word I was never allowed. There's always there is a feeling, there is a thought. You know, I'm going, no, there is madness, no, I'm going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of thing. So you're continually impersonalizing everything, which doctrinally is kind of quite correct, actually. But in terms of process, one had to actually establish some healthy sense of our One had to actually establish some healthy sense of our participating flow experience. So you started dissecting the fish before you caught it. You know, you hadn't actually got anything whole to start analysing. So one's working from a dissociated experience of bleakness and then and actually cutting it up into further fragments. So I did, I managed three years of that. I was in a very weird state by the end of three years of it. Because um, in that time, I mean, when a woman, I, was, I saw the teacher and I'd say something like, Oh, you know, I'm feeling a bit like they say, no, no, it's, it's, there is this feeling. Or, or you say, use the word I and say, who? Think, well, I. <laughs> That's a feeling. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the word I actually sort of got rubbed off out of the English language. And then you look, anatan, that's self. Okay, that's correct. So, but then the meditation is one where one got increasingly the sense of this kind of empty, numb space which these things were happening to. And this numb space is getting quite tight and tense and, uh, and, and incoherent. So I was getting in a very strange state by the time I, I um, got out of that one. So, and then even things like, you know, to be aware of things like watching your mind, just as, an, you know, this again is, can be skillful, it can be unskillful, it depends how you use it. Because if you get the sense of this distancing from what's really happening, then with that, even though it can be quite good for <coughs> developing some clarity, you can also get a sense of, of, it's not real, you know. It's not really, nothing's really there, it's all just stuff going on. And you can even kind of get this feeling that you're, that you're, you're in line with truth, like all this stuff's impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self, coming and going, so what, you know. 
Uh, and uh, the, but the, so the quality of, the, of the, the whole realm is one of a sort of drab and, and slight, slightly negative or disinterested. There's no, no joy in it. If it works, if it's like that. I remember telling, I've probably told this story before, this chap I was talking to was in a meditation centre and he was doing one of these systems where he was you know, noting everything he was doing, like touching, feeling, holding, thinking, this kind of thing. And he got so into this after retreat that he's got this whole kind of habit of doing this in his mind. He's going to make a cup of tea and they had this big urn of hot water in the kitchen and he thought he'd go and make a cup of tea for the teacher so he noted the intention and he went opened the door noted the sound of the door handle turning noted the sound of his feet hitting the floor felt the feeling touched, got hold of the urn turned the hot water on and it and then his thought came into his mind something wrong something wrong no cup <laughs> It's like he got so out of the actual reality of the situation into this kind of this. So there's a sense of dissociation rather than dispassion. Rather than recognize there are certain conventions to be observed in terms of making a cup of tea, one is the presence of a cup, you know, sine qua non of good cup of tea. So the activity of mindfulness then is one where it's certainly it's um, it's dispassionate, but it's dispassionate not in terms of contact, but in terms of how contact <coughs> is how it's ex- how you how it's how it's experienced. Basically, contact is fully experienced, very fully experienced. Feeling is fully to be known. Body is very. If you look in. The, in the sutta, Satipatthana Sutta, is a very, very thorough experiencing of body, you know, in itself. But then, what is what is? There's no particular judgment, no value attached to it. There's no it should be this way or that way. But it's it's a very strong and purposeful engagement action. But what it doesn't do, it goes. It's m- me doing it. But the normal adjectives that make this thing mine are not applied. The normal, oh, this is great, or oh, this is terrible, are not applied. So this is not mine. It's, it's itself. You know? So that's, that's the particular activity that occurs. It's a very close engagement in terms of action and contact. And yet the, the contact impression is steered towards knowing something actually in itself. So if we cultivate this with body, which is the primary and perhaps the simplest, the easiest base, the least complex, then you begin to realize how there can be a very full contact experience that leads you to a, a flow experience of, of joyfulness 
and uh, and uh, centeredness, and yet there's still a sense of which um, it's just you know the body is is seen through. It's not it's not held in a particular as a particular belonging to anybody. It's not held in a particular <coughs> state. The very body impression itself tends to to break up um, into just feeling and uh, perceptions. You see through the body, through thoroughly, fully contacting it, but not mining it. So the body becomes a transparent thing. Not through dissociation, but through direct contact. This is, so this is a model for how to, what to, how to deal with uh, the mind, which of course is far more slippery and elusive and, uh, and takes a lot more skill. But certainly what has to be done is the acknowledgement of mental mood and feeling. Not a, not a, narcissistic, not a narcissistic acknowledgement like, you know, well, I'm so this, I'm so special, I'm very this, I'm, I was born like this, and my mother did that, and I never was like that, and I always got, you know, we can all come up with those kinds of things. So it's not making a whole kind of personal history out of it, uh, even though that, that can be quite valid on one level. You know, I'm sure it, all these have their part to play, but, but in terms of actual, that's less analysis, which is another process and has its own values. But mindfulness is a process that actually is bringing you very much to the, the present point. This point right now, what am I doing with the feeling? This point right now, what is that saying to me? Hmm? What is uh, depression or fear or not being able to do this? Incompetence, the experience of incompetence. How do I relate to that experience? And it can be, you know, related to all kinds of things in terms of one's activities and performance in the past. But right now, what's what's the acti- What do we do? What do we do with that? <laughs> so very often, the experience of meditation is it can be like that: the mind just not being able to handle it at all. You know, walking up and down, walking meditation, and just not really getting it at all. Jumble. What is this all about? And the thing to to keep uh, acknowledging it is is just that point of contact, which is signified by the feeling of disappointment unhappiness and then that very point of contact feeling is the thing that is acknowledged open to recognized contacted and released so what this means in practical terms today after the meal I'm doing walking meditation walking up and down it was it's all right. Wasn't great, you know. And walking up there for about an hour, you know, after about forty-five minutes, just not getting this together at all. Whatever that was supposed to be, I think I've got some idea in my mind of, you know, 
developing something or the other, it would be fatal. <laughs> so, you know, I'd got this kind of superimposed some kind of, here I'm going to do walking meditation and I will develop something in the back of my mind that's probably working. So I actually lost contact with the present moment of it. So after about 45 minutes, I was thinking, oh, this has been going a long time. I, I thought I'd determined to, to practice it for about an hour or so. And again, this is another one of these very interesting snag points when you bring in the time concept. They're really interesting to, to juggle with. Because then you've created a boundary. You know, after, you know, I've got to do this for an hour. After half an hour, you've lost contact with it. Half an hour, what am I going to do? I can either bail out, then I have to live with a feeling of disgrace. <laughs> <laughs> or I can plug on pointlessly for another half an hour, but then I have to live with a feeling of just being a blind, obedient idiot. <laughs> so, you know. And then actually just taking that point and, and recognizing the, the, the hope, the incompetence, the hope, the feeling of failure. And, and so then connecting to that as, well, that's, that's, the, that's the real point right now, is the feeling of can't do this. And then what that brings up, why do I have to do this? I don't see why, it must be an easy way, da, 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 and so on, this kind of thing. No, 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 just get back to can't do this feeling failure. And then, you know, instead of extending it in time in the four directions, just notice the unpleasant mental feeling. Bring it down to something tangible, specific in the moment. And then what is going to do with unpleasant mental feeling? Essentially, you open up to it, you relax around it, you take it in, you slow down with it, you don't try and push past it, you lose, you take all the time in the world to be with it. In other words, all the things that the compulsive sankharas are doing, you go against. You go against identifying with it, you go against steamrolling over it, you go against blaming on somebody else. You go against blaming on yourself. You go against trying to, you know, hurry up and get it done. Oh, just stand still, breathe, all the, t- all the time in the world to breathe with this feeling of incompetence. You know, the sort of thing that you want to push over. Or that sets up all these painful memories. And so that then the you know, beauty of mindfulness is it just says, this is a feeling. Vedana, mental Vedana. It's all right to have unpleasant feeling. And then that was the point. And then when one actually releases that Vedana from being held as self, being buried as a shadow in oneself, being projected out as something that's being done to me, myself, then the Vedana is free to dissolve. And this is so often the the point of the meditation in terms of insight. There can be times when it's flowing and times when it's not flowing. The times when it's flowing are times when you actually 
witness what makes it flow. You only begin to review and contemplate the sense of giving, the sense of non-expectation, you know, the, and the, the quality of, of samadhi or, or of insights or of, you know, the, the, the enlightenment factors of the mind. And then when it's not working, take that on. You know, not as a, an experience that's got to be shrugged off, but something that you, you, you penetrate, you connect to. So you can begin to understand how one creates one's successes and failures. So this sense of connection is really an element of what's right views about. It means that uh, one has karma, there are tendencies, and we inherit the results of them. Whatever skillful things we do, we'll get results from. Whatever unskillful things we do, we'll get results from. Whatever results we experience will tend to engender new experiences. So whatever kind of neuroses and fears and worries we have will tend to come up again in a new experience and look for a place to regender themselves, re-engender themselves. This is right view to understand this. When right view is accompanied by mindfulness, then it's not denying that experience, but it's saying, it's beginning to experience these things occur in terms of factors and elements and occasions rather than people and persons. And for that, it's worth traveling and struggling a long way. To see that. This is exactly what the particular point of the Buddha's teaching is about. To penetrate suffering. So that if one penetrates suffering, you begin to really see, not from a doctrinal point of view, but from a participation point of view, is it feelings and body and mind stuff operating? And the particular things that that one can uh, one can see how they're they're brought together and how they're released. Very much focus on the sense of time when you get the temp pressure of time, just learn how to stop, go to the moment, and you feel yourself expand. When you get the pressure of feeling, you know, when you get the pressure of feeling you are something, investigate that. What's it related to? Or what you feel you're not, what's that related to? These are the these are the insight, these are the realm of insight. This is what you really look into in order to to penetrate the Four Noble Truths which lead to that freedom, release. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a long, it's a path that requires a lot of agility. But this is our 
possibility 